Hello and welcome to the Anima Cafe podcast, a chance to hear the recording of our latest cafe, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Enjoy. I'm Anahid, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Anima Leadership. Uh, Just very briefly, for those of you that don't know, Anima is a company that was founded 17 years ago uh, by myself and Shaquille. Both of us came out of social change work, systems change work, and really wanted to create a space to address um, discrimination in all of those systems in a way that was psychologically informed. And so a lot of the work Anima does takes an analysis of systemic power and integrates it with an understanding of psychology and healing and trauma. I am joined today by Emma Lind, who is uh, one of our senior um, educators and consultants. So Emma, I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, Thanks, Anahid. My name is Emma. I use she, her pronouns. I have been active in social justice and equity work for the last 20 years. A lot of that work was done academically. So I uh, finished my PhD a few years ago, trying to understand settler colonial power. And I really thought for many years that my job in the equity space was to find the right answer. Because maybe if I found the right answer, the solutions would be obvious. Maybe I would even find myself healed. I found myself still wounded, even after having all the fancy language and all the right answers. So it was really once I found Anima that I was finally able to find a place to integrate heart and mind and to do the real transformative work that I hadn't been able to find in either activist spaces or academic spaces. So uh, I moonlight as a gender studies professor at Okanagan College in Kelowna, BC, Um, and it's it's with the work at Anima that I find uh, we're able to have the comprehensive conversations that are needed to dream a different world. Mm, which you will hear about as we go forward. <laughs> and um, I'm going to pass it over to you to um, also do the land acknowledgement. Right. I want to bring greetings from the unceded silk territory in the Okanagan Valley and acknowledge that Anima leadership is based in Toronto, the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Huron-Wendat peoples, specifically recognizing the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, as well as their ancestors and spirits as stewards of the Toronto region. And I'll pass it over to Lillian for some logistical updates as we uh, begin our program. Hi, uh, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon. (laughs) Thank you, Emma. Um, So I'm gonna go over the etiquette and the tech um, pieces. So um, thank you for joining us. Noting here that everyone's audio is muted upon entry. If you do have something to say, feel free to virtually raise your hand throughout the session and uh, unmute when called upon. This piece is very important. We do encourage you to keep uh, your camera on if that is available to you so that we can all remain present together and fully engaged throughout the session. A reminder as well to have your name showing as well as your pronouns if you feel comfortable doing so. For example, mine shows um, Anima Tech, my name along with brackets showing she, they. You can do this by clicking the three dots in the top right corner of your picture in the in the call and then clicking rename and then you can change your name that way. And uh, we do have closed captioning available if you need it. 
Um, if you need any tech support throughout the session, feel free to message me directly at Animatech. And we do encourage the use of virtual reactions throughout the session. For example, thumbs up, claps if you agree with something, et cetera. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh... <laughs> Clapping is especially appreciated whenever you want to use that reaction at any point. <laughs> Thank you, Lillian. That's that's wonderful. Lillian is our incredible uh, EA and uh, admin coordinator, and we are so lucky to have uh, have them. Lillian, I don't know, maybe we could just, you could put, I'll just, before we get into the conversation, I just want to let folks know that we have um, our Anima courses on our annual sale of 40% off until November 6th. So you're welcome to um, take advantage of that. And obviously the the leader labs are coming up, which we're talking about today, and they're going to start up again in January, both the BIPOC leader lab, the uh, equity lab for um, white leaders. So I'm going to, Emma and I are going to have a conversation because um, I led the BIPOC leader lab and Emma led the, um, the white, uh, the leader lab for white leaders. And um, we're, we've, we're pulling some of the key insights and themes and learning from each of the um, the groups that uh, that we led over the course of a few months. So, um, Emma, I'm gonna. Pass sure. it to you. So I remember when I first joined Anima, it was you know halfway through 2020 when the public language about equity work was changing in a really intense way. Um, activists had been um, doing this work for a really long time on the margins of the culture, but it seemed like the mainstream was beginning to talk about equity, in particular race and anti-racism, with um, a renewed interest in intensity and commitment. And frankly, things were really busy and we were moving so fast, reaching um, new communities. Um, that it wasn't until a year later that we could take our breath and begin talking about the changes we were seeing in the field. And I remember after an animal retreat, Anahit and I were walking, you know, digesting all these new ideas we had been working through. And Anahit said to me, I've got this idea. I want to start leader labs. And I had never heard that word before. But there was something kind of electric in what she had said, and I could feel it in my body immediately. I thought, leader labs, like, how exciting and brilliant, but what on earth does that mean? So, but Anahid had the vision. She had it all worked out. Uh, so I wanted to know, Anahid, uh, as, you, as you conceived that idea, what was coming into your vision? What, what did you think? Uh, I think of a lab as kind of science-y. Um, you were inviting me to think of it as like radical and social change oriented. So why the language of labs? And why was that different than other things you had seen out there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, it's interesting because they sound like they're conjoined, the BIPOC leader lab and the lab for white leaders, yeah. but they actually came out of separate kind of thought processes. So I'll speak to the the lab for white leaders first, which came out of after George Floyd, which was the moment when um, most institutions were reckoning with certainly needing to do more racial justice work and address race gaps in their in their systems. And 
what I call the deer in headlights look from the majority of white leaders that I would be speaking to on Zoom, like, which I interpret as, I know I need to do something, but I don't quite know what it is. And I'm terrified I'm going to get it wrong. And realizing that we can, you know, resources are limited. Many institutions, especially at that time, invested in training, you know, one, four sessions, whatever it might be. But it didn't prevent the deer in headlights look. And, you know, some of the conversation we've been having at Anima over the last couple of years is how equity is a form of literacy. And just like learning a new language, which um, studies show on average takes, what, 360 hours Similarly, we need to learn the principles around equity, learn to see the patterns that play out, and then learn how to interrupt them. And that's a process. And most leaders don't have space to go through that process in their workplace. Um, and so, you know, realizing that we need to create an environment that is really comfortable where people can come in and have conversations and feel like they can ask the awkward questions and make mistakes and you know get their heads around what it means to really actively push for equity and inclusion within their scope of influence so yes. that was the yeah go ahead I was just wondering, you were saying you saw the deer in the headlights look from white leaders on calls what was the vibe you were getting from BIPOC leaders? So that was a separate thought process. So white leader, you know, the lab for white leaders was really like, we need to put something in support to really help white identified leaders learn without feeling like they're always liable, right? I, I think we're in a moment where it's just, I understand why folks would be feeling fear because there's so little, you know, we're passing all these policies without giving place for leaders to learn what those, you know, what it means, how to discern, how to implement the policy, how to discern what's what. We're seeing a lot in our work, especially in the education system of leaders either making a mountain out of a molehill or, you know, the opposite, not addressing something that actually is um, significant because they don't, there's no, the learning hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. um, for BIPOC, leaders, it's something I've been sitting with for, for a long time. And it's an accumulation, it was an accumulation of a lot of little moments of um, realizing that racialized leaders are not speaking to their experience often in the main room. It happens at breaks, it happens after the session, it happens through email, all these little um, outreaches of, you know, thank you for saying that this really resonates with my experience. And then here's my story. Or um, I was afraid to speak up in the session because of, you know, my manager was my white manager was there, but I really want to say this to you and realizing that we're at a moment in our systems where racialized leaders are facing what I think women would have faced a generation ago in male dominant institutions um, with male dominant leadership which is, I feel like I'm, I'm um, operating against the current. I have to repeat myself four times before I'm heard. Um, I never get invited out to drinks where most of the deals are talked about. Um, I cannot talk about having wanting to have children because I'll be written off. 
but I can't say any of that because it'll be seen as an individual issue rather than a systemic issue. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing for racialized leaders who are still very much in the minority, but are slowly coming into the pipelines to, um, you know, it's interesting when we talk about equity, women have certainly, white women have, I think are the, and gay white men, I think are the most represented equity groups at leadership levels. Mm-hmm. Racialized leaders are just starting to get there and it's still very much, um, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will say, and I'll, I'll share, you know, um, and it's an invisible struggle still. And we don't have, there's not a lot to support BIPOC leaders in that place of being mm-hmm. the first, the few or the only mm-hmm. um, in their place of work. So I think it was, um, actually, it's one of the most, the proudest things I've ever put together in my work life so far. So if, so if it's a standout program that you've put together, what was most powerful about it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are conversations that only happen when we are in an environment where we can shorthand with people around aspects of our identity. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think one of the most powerful things was, and it started in the first session of people saying, I've never spoken this aloud to a group of people before, never mind people in a similar role to myself. So that ability to um, shorthand experience and have people lean in and go, yes, I get that was um, an incredible catharsis. And that was all the way through. Mm-hmm. I think people, there was just a relief mm-hmm. of having people share what I feel like I carry most of the time as an individual burden. How about for you? What did you feel was one of the most um, powerful aspects of the, the Lab for White Leaders? The word that comes first to mind is community. That was absolutely the most powerful part of it. Uh, and as you were, it's a similar but different experience in the White Leader Lab because there is there. I think there are some conversations that are most responsibly had between white people. There are um, questions and scenarios and mistakes that we need to make and need to talk through. And mm-hmm. I don't think those are conversations that necessarily need to happen in the mainstream. And a pattern that we've seen. Um, in all corners of social justice work is um, uh, a dynamic whereby folks of color in the room are asked to facilitate some sort of learning process for white folks who need to, mm-hmm. you know, think out loud or um, workshop ideas. And so mm-hmm. there is a tradition among some social justice um, groups around having like a white caucus, a white anti-racist caucus. The White Leader Lab was a version of that. Mm-hmm. So there's an emotional safety as well as a permission to mm-hmm. workshop ideas. And sometimes uh, when talking about the BIPOC Leader Lab, there's a there's almost a feeling I or a sense I get from you that there's a kind of catharsis, like a, a finally I can speak freely. In the White Leader Lab, there's a lot more um drawing down the barriers that are in the way from speaking freely 
So when I say the barriers that are in the way from speaking freely, I'm talking about the ways in which white folks in North America have been groomed to stay silent and have been socialized to think that silence is polite at the expense of honesty and authenticity. So we talk a lot about the dominant culture and um, how the dominant culture loves keeping us silent, loves keeping us maintaining the status quo. Mm -hmm. And when we maintain the status quo, we're not working in solidarity and we're not um, Mm. thinking of our own experience shaped by race and racism as well. Mm. So Mm -hmm. it's about naming the unnameable, Mm -hmm. breaking through and making connections where the dominant culture often encourages us not to. Oh, that's interesting. So catharsis and breaking silence. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because I think that any form of oppression, you know, operates by taking human traits, Mm -hmm. cutting them down the middle and assigning the more favorable traits to the group in power and taking the less favorable traits and giving them to the group that has less power. And there is a way where everybody loses out. Yes. And of course, we don't often talk about this, but of course, white leaders, white people lose out in a system where of racism as well. Yeah. So I hear you speaking to that. Um, yeah, and it's um, it is it's language that um, we've been trained not to speak. So it feels uh-huh. scary and awkward naming it. And, you know, you mentioned gender as a, as an analogy earlier. And of course there are risks to, you know, uh, using the analogy between race and gender, but there's also ways in which that analogy is so useful. And Mm. I'm very fluent in the language of white feminism. And, uh, you know, my communities have been very clear that men benefit from feminism. Patriarchy is not good to men. Patriarchy is really mean to men. And so I keep coming back to, okay, so if the most liberated men I know have liberated themselves from the macho ideal, what Mm. does it then look like to be uh, a liberated white anti-racist? How Mm. how can I liberate myself from white supremacy? Um, Mm. How would that lead to my own liberation? What what about my own personal story would change Mm -hmm. if that becomes a value system central to me and my own meaning making? Well, and it strikes me that one of the first steps is recognizing that I am myself, but there's also a role I play in the system as a white person and seeing that layer as something placed on me rather than inherent. So I didn't, I didn't think of myself as a Brown person until I moved to Canada. And it's only three years ago where I used, no, two years ago after George Floyd, where I used the word white person in a session, because before that you couldn't say it because no one recognized themselves as white. So I do feel like that feels like a first step toward seeing that there are cultural ideals that we were kind of uh, social, you know, there's pressure to be socialized into that we can make choices around. And for white people to see that, feels like a step forward and for the culture to tolerate that kind of language white person i mean i'm i'm so struck by what you just said because you know three years ago after the murder of george floyd anima was a well-established equity leadership company so you had been leading these workshops for years and and so the the political climate wasn't friendly to even naming whiteness in the Mm -hmm. same way like that's 
-hmm. that's really like whoa you know that in 2020 it would have been risque to even say that um is a testament to how powerful mm -hmm. this silencing work is yeah 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 and also yeah and and hopeful because i think about again you compared um being aware of um our racial roles to being aware of gender roles and like you know i don't i can't imagine the barbie movie having been made that's true before me, me yes. too and how yes. rapidly you know we can see yeah. our culture shift yeah. once, you know i think about it as a tipping point moment um mm -hmm. yeah i never thought i'd hear the word patriarchy come out of ryan gosling's mouth yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Never mind a song. We'll right, talk about right, it. Right. <laughs> Still waiting um, for the song about white supremacy, but it is coming. <laughs> um. So we had uh, we had come as we were reflecting and preparing for today. We were reflecting on our key takeaways from our experience facilitating these simultaneous groups. Um, did you want to uh, share our secrets from the EDI Leader Labs? Yes. Why don't we, um, do you want to go back and forth? I can I can start us off. So sure. uh, one of the first uh, things that I would name is that how many um, BIPOC leaders feel nervous about sharing our experience? I think you were saying, Emma, how one of the white leaders commented, well, I've asked my racialized staff to let me know when I slip up yeah I think what many white leaders don't understand is still how much of a risk it is how the pattern for many racialized leaders is the minimization or being ignored or dismissed um and so there was there was a hesitation about even speaking to particular experiences um and we also connected to that talked about how important assertive, assertiveness muscles are to, um, we can't just also be waiting for an invitation to speak up to the ways in which white systems can silence um, racialized leaders and their experience, but we also have to be, um, you know, discerning about the right places and the right people to speak up to, but that is, that's, so it's difficult, but we also need to find the the, the places to do it. Um, because and no broad, system changes yeah. without challenge. Sorry, the broader culture never uh, acknowledges that it's difficult to speak up. All of the HR policies we've got on the books say the onus is on you to speak up. Mm -hmm. That's the only way discrimination ever gets documented. You got to speak up for as though that is the easiest thing to do, like mm -hmm. filing paperwork. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that say about our systems mm -hmm. that we never yeah. acknowledge that it's difficult? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about you? The first secret from the White Leader Lab is trust the process and don't try to fix too early. Mm. So there is a way in which our frameworks of professionalism and uh, institutional like recognition of any issue is to drive towards um, fixing the problem, to neutralize it quickly, to just check it off uh, a list. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the patterns I've noticed 
the White Leader Lab is one of the programs we offer for white anti-racists. Another is a program, um, a course on whiteness, decoding race for white leaders. And in both those um, contexts, when we're talking about white anti-racism, one of the strongest patterns um, from the group, from the conversation is this is really this is a really nice idea, but I need a tangible solution. When are we going to talk about the practical? When are we going to actually have the to-do list that I can take? And that speaks to the role of compliance-driven policies in our workplaces. Many large organizations hold themselves to compliance. Okay, there's a new legislation. We make we need to make sure we don't get sued. And we are often locked into an either-or kind of framework. Was this event racist or was it not racist? Is this cause for dismissal or is it not? Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying those conversations aren't important. Those conversations are essential. But that can't be the place the conversation starts. Mm -hmm. Like, how about racism's everywhere? It's going to be here. How are we racist? How is this happening? Mm -hmm. And how is racism preventing us from having solid relationships with each other? So uh, rather than focusing on compliance, we need to be really focusing on relationship, on a shared language. Um, I think everyone understands that it's really easy to lose track of spending. We know this in our personal budgets. We know this in our institutional budgets. Every organization has, has quarterly reviews and budget review meetings. No one expects the budget to be perfect or seamless. That needs to be the way we think about anti-racism initiatives. It's really easy to fall back into the dominant culture's um, practice. So this is countercultural work. We need to be reviewing our systems and fostering an environment so that our relations are strong and our relationships are strong enough to hold those conversations and to move everyone forward. You know, Emma, when you say that, and this isn't off, this is off, off the, the secrets, but I, one of the things that feels like it's just increased is the level of polarization that is happening around any conversations of difference. Yeah. And it, I fear what's happening because I feel like it's pushing the goal of people learning and coming on board and then applying their learning. Like it's pushing, regressing, <laughs> pushing further away the destination of getting to a future where people, regardless of their background or identity, can just take for granted that they will find a place for themselves. I just think about like when in what you were saying, one of the goals of these labs is not to move people into a more polarized position. Like for BIPOC leaders, how do you go out and be more of a warrior? And for, you know, white identified leaders, how do you, you know, um, I, I don't know, uh, you know, step back and not say anything, but rather having conversations across identities of how to see the whole and build bridges across these differences to help our systems reduce the level of polarization. Like that was a, a sub theme in our lab. And I feel like it's so needed. Um, it's so needed. I, I feel like our communities are splintering and it's painful. And I worry about what our future is gonna look like. And so I, that was 
strengthening those muscles in the lab through conversation and practice like how do you raise an issue with Mm -hmm. a with a leader with a white leader Mm -hmm. um, or colleague Mm -hmm. in a way that you're not dehumanizing them and Mm -hmm. yeah uh it's sometimes it's threatening it can be like in a in a perverse way um polarization can feel really validating i have a really hard time it it takes a lot more work seeing the humanity uh in somebody whose identity has more social privilege than your own or in the humanity in somebody who has just hurt you Mm -hmm. that it requires a different skill set but but just as you've mentioned earlier the system is set up to deny each of us on either side of the power axis. The yeah. system is set up so that we both arrive at this half human. Yeah. Right. So part of this work is the very difficult work of building the bridge and having these conversations mm-hmm. in a humanizing way. Mm-hmm. Um, because when they escalate to the point of official complaints and, you know, disciplinary committees and all that 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 is a very polarizing practice right yes or no right or wrong and and there's a place for that in our organizational life but but complementary to that there needs to be a relational practice Mm -hmm. that gets fostered Mm -hmm. that's right because what the end goal is in my mind is that not that we replace the dominant group in charge now, which is by and large, racially speaking, white European Mm -hmm. folks with BIPOC racialized folks of any community, Mm -hmm. rather that we learn to use power differently so that we're not needing to dominate any group for gain of another. And I think that, um, that's why the inner skills are so important because when we look at history, every single government coup or any group that has overthrown another doesn't do it better sometimes they're worse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah fascism is always there mm-hmm. right um and it's efficient this is actually that's part of why um the leader lab secret is don't try to fix too early the yeah. most efficient pathway is often the most power top-down power-driven model mm-hmm. rather than a collaborative um mm-hmm. model that you know seeks to you know work with a you know for instance a consensus driven process to yeah that's right build relationship that's right well tied to that i'll just mention um the uh the second um piece for us is that you know the goal or white we talked about that it's not about getting rid of whiteness norms um which come from european culture of like you said politeness on time task over relationship but having a um being able to hold a diversity of different norms or ways of doing things and knowing when one way of doing things might be the preferred way over another and i think sometimes we can it's not about making white people or whiteness norms or white culture bad it's about making space for other ways right valid yeah right it's not it's not the um the dominant the dominant norms we currently have um the practices aren't the problem 
It's the fact they're dominant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the fact that it's a one size fits all that's the problem. Uh, my people are very good at um, silence and passive aggression. It's not great, but I'm not here to de- demonize it. It's just um, talking about something bluntly and out loud doesn't make someone a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's simply, it's important to recognize, whoa, this is feeling a little activating. I got mm-hmm. a choice here. The person having a blunt conversation is the problem or I've been groomed to think that talking bluntly is rude. Like it's just yeah. a matter of chilling out a bit and um, making mm-hmm. room for the fact that, yeah, you know, there's multiple truths all at once. Yeah, that's right. And I'm going to connect that just, I'll just do the, um, the, the, the third one here as well, that in that uh, um, because those norms are so strong, um, a lot of people of color, leaders of color talk about, coach shifting right uh-huh. or the way I behave in my culture of origin is very different than the way I behave in my workplace which is yeah. dictated by whiteness norms so I have to say I think I've done a lot of inner work and I think that those um I code you know I it's less for me at this point but I certainly still am a lot louder and less inhibited and I think funnier in a very goofy way with my Iranian family where we're you know in the ca- I think about the cafe six o'clock the Italian center and you know like all the my father's voice you know echoes like all the way across the store and <laughs> I'm just I don't notice anymore the the looks of passers-by like oh my god you're dialing in a bit um but certainly and I know that, you know, examples of like language is often one of the signs of code shifting, African-American vernacular that you mm-hmm. mentioned or using Patois. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that it's it's important when we're in a dominant identity to let, let the code shifting, like let it be okay. Like if there's a group that's speaking Patois, sometimes I think it can be threatening to those of us that don't know what's going on. Well, it's going on because it's a survival strategy in a system that isn't set up to welcome your identity and so can we just let it be and in fact support it even right right because of course it's it's a normal way to communicate and that's another thing it's not you know it's not out of place it's perfectly welcome um so another secret of the white leader lab is learning to repair is key to strong relationships Mm -hmm. um part of the culture of conflict avoidance professionalism is often coded as somehow conflict avoidant. I don't know if we have models of how to have a healthy conflict in a professional relationship. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's a sign of white supremacy working. Uh, Avoiding conflict is not actually helping us because we're not avoiding conflict, we're avoiding communication. Um, And so rather than expecting that any sign of conflict is a problem in a relationship. Instead, we should all expect that all of our relationships are going to have moments of conflict. And instead, the skill set we need to be building is an acknowledgement of how to repair. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, conflict, um, conflict resilience and conflict competence are mm-hmm. secured by strong repair strategies. Mm-hmm. So relationships will rupture. Learning how to repair, voicing your own vulnerability, your own humility 
in, you know, apologizing, uh, expressing your needs, very scary things to do for folks who have been trained to avoid saying those things at all, or even having that internal conversation within. And then also skills around hearing and delivering feedback. These are these are designed to strengthen relationships moving forward. And that's the kind of work environment we need to work towards. Skills in feedback and um, conflict resilience are actually the skills at talking about hard things. Mm-hmm. And an environment that fosters those skills is an environment that will be um, uh, equipped to handle conversations about race and racism. Yeah, yeah. And do you want to speak to the next one too, Emma? Sure. Related to that, uh, one of the ways that white supremacy likes to describe conflict is something's wrong. So the relationship, it's a bad relationship if there's conflict. We need to reject the idea of perfectionism in our relationships. So uh, to reject the idea of perfectionism in terms of, you know, what we're expecting out of a relationship also what we're expecting of ourselves we're not going to be perfect at this okay could we be competent and resilient that's the goal sometimes white folks can get seduced into a trap of thinking that BIPOC folks um, need to be impressed with our anti-racism we might want to kind of performatively reach out and that's a reflection that we're not in the authentic space where we're just talking as ourselves Similarly, and this is an edgy thing to say, we're allowed to not love each other as colleagues. We're allowed to have relationships that are functional, but not super close. So uh, conflict is allowed to happen interracially. Mm-hmm. We need to make peace with that and be able to uh, recognize where our authenticity is getting sidetracked or watered down by white supremacist thinking that everything needs to be perfect and mm-hmm. we can never talk about hard things together that's right yeah i feel like um there's so many layers of um richness in this conversation i'm wondering emma if we should just maybe mention the last two and let people read up on those and we sure. can uh, have some other voices come in yeah. i'll just um the last two for um, folks that were in the BIPOC leader lab um, include like we ourselves struggle with racial and other forms of bias, just because one experiences racism or any form of oppression doesn't mean that one doesn't all also enact it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I have to actively work on anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism, and there's also other identities, um, ableism. So, you know, none of us have the territorial rights to being the perfect inclusive, you know, model. Um, and that's that's important to note. And connected to that, um, although there's a lot of um, moments of pain for a lot of leaders at different moments in the conversation, also an acknowledgement that you know, we're not, we're more than just victims, that this is a really edgy thing to say, but when you grow up not having access to system power, you acquire a set of skills that are useful in leadership, 
that others don't have. So I think you more easily see power dynamics in a room. There is often, not for everybody, of course, but can be um, an ability to organize and um, pull people together, um, to advocate, um, to be resilient in the face of something happening, to have brave conversations because you kind of need to in order to survive. So that that's an interesting thing that that gets lost. And of course, it's tricky because you don't want to say, oh, but turn the lemon into lemonade but there's things gained when we can um from being in struggle as well and so i'll just go over the last two um secrets from the white leader lab before we um open it up to questions the fourth secret is our relationship to the land is central to our anti-racism here i think of the famous um uh racist question but where are you really from and it speaks so much to how racism in North America is all about coding which bodies belong in this territory, which bodies don't. And um, one of settler colonialism's biggest victories is that somehow it's um, tricked us all into thinking a body like mine looks like it belongs in Indigenous territory or that it owns Indigenous territory. And so it's not just that, but as white folks, uh, we have been encouraged to pursue um, self-actualization through home ownership. And I'm, I'm not trying to talk about the micro, the actual personal transaction of owning a home, but rather from a different, from a macro perspective, the idea of, of the land as ownership, as identity, as sense of belonging mm -hmm. impacts the story we tell about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Do we tell a story about ourselves as immigrants? Do we tell a story about ourselves as being tricked into thinking our belonging is dependent upon the appropriation of someone else's land? Where do we begin to disrupt that narrative and speak back to that, um, mm -hmm. to that myth? Mm -hmm. So uh, cultivating a relationship to the land beyond private practice. Um, private property, cultivating a relationship to the land in solidarity with Indigenous um, movements for self-determination and land back helps us um, think through our own relationship to belonging and the land. And that is part of, um, leads me to the fifth secret of the EDI Leader Lab, which is anti-racism and anti-colonial work is ongoing. It, this is not about solving a problem this is about stepping into a practice and integrating the practice into uh, a permanent way of being mm -hmm. so the and education is never done and the self-reflection is never done and that's why the word lab is so relevant yeah. because just like in the lab you're experimenting and experimenting until finally you can right i think there's something beautiful about having spaces where we can experiment with a practice of um belonging yeah, um, the practice of inclusion and the practice of dismantling the abuse of power in our systems. Well, um, we are going to share with you folks after this uh, the link to the blog post where um, we've written up an explanation for each of these. So don't feel like you have to madly or quickly kind of write these down, but just opening this up, the conversation up for a few minutes. Anyone? Um, want to speak to anything that uh, jumped out at you that affirmed something or was a new idea or you have a question about? I mean, Emma and I can happily keep talking. Oh, I yes. See Kathy. Kathy. 
Hi. Um, yeah, just, um, I don't know whether it's really that relevant or not, but I will ask it. I know some people from our team have asked it is just how to frame these conversations and how to, how to, um, for our white leaders, how to kind of encourage them to attend these, this, these sessions, because I think some of our white leaders need it, but they may not think so. And maybe they're just not ready. Um, so I guess how to kind of sell it to them without having to sell it to them. It's a great question. It reminds me of um, a student feedback form I got after teaching gender studies one year. And the student wrote, the only thing he wrote was, thank you for not making me feel bad about being a straight white man. I thought, what? Is that what you thought this course was going to be about? So I think maybe um, being very mindful that there's all kinds of psychological resistance that folks in dominant identities feel to entering the equity space. And I think this is actually the work of white moderates is to extend a, a hand, a bridge to folk, white bodied, you know, community members who might be curious about becoming allies and invite them to have a conversation that's not going to be about shame and blame. It's not going to be punishing. It's going to be exploratory and rewarding. So I wonder if, if it could be about conversation about identity would be uh, one step. I've seen people uh, advertise safe space for white questions. Uh, I think that it might, coming to a formal event might be step three. Steps one and two might be gentler initiatives within your uh, community or your workplace to um, seed the conversation a bit more gently. Mm -hmm. And that could um, begin with, you know, formats of inviting people to bring their curious questions or to speak about their own um, different relationships to, mm -hmm. you know, questions of identity, you know, nationality and belonging or something. Mm -hmm. it, it can sometimes be very scary for folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's well put. Um, framing for who's in front of us. I think there's different ways of framing depending on the level of leadership, the person, um, their experience. And also data helps um, and being able to point to, you know, there's a there's a business institutional advantage to us addressing X, Y, and Z gaps for these particular groups because it'll, you know, it'll mean that we, I don't know, retain, um, retain people. We um, will um, come up, you know, innovate um, more quickly, like whatever, whatever outcomes you want to point towards. I mean, the loss of one person that has spent a year, two years in an institution to retrain a new person in those same skills is a tremendous loss for any institution, huge, right? So we don't always have to just stick with a justice case, the moral case for doing equity. We can, in fact, they're very linked. There's the justice case is very linked to um, organizational efficacy. Um, Mina, and then uh, Ayesha. Am I saying that properly, Aisha? So Mina, go ahead, please. Good afternoon, everyone. I just have a question about um, sharing experiences. So when, when you talk about sharing experiences, are you talking about 
our experience in the workplace, say with microaggressions or macroaggressions, whatever they may be, um, or are we really focusing more on bringing our life experiences in to, to generate wider sort of thought patterns and ideas, approaches? Mina, can you, I'm not, I'm not getting the difference between addressing micro and micro, macro and micro um, inequities from addressing the difference between that and addressing thought, inner thought patterns. I see them as very much the. So, you know how um, cultures, different cultures approach problem solving in different ways, or I just might think of, think of a problem in a, with a slightly different approach. For example, approaching DEI work uh, through the psychological aspects like you are doing is very different to the way that many other people approach DEI work. Do you understand what I'm saying? So often I find that the way that I approach a problem is different to how manage managers above me approach the problem. And then they kind of like, no, that's not what we want to do. Or are you talking about um, being able to say, you know, I, when I'm talking in a meeting and you talk over me, that sort of is an, a microaggression. Um, could you please refrain from doing that? So what kind of experiences? It could be all of it. I don't know. Were you mm -hmm. speaking to the first secret of the BIPOC leader lab? We're nervous yeah. about doing our uh -huh. yeah. yeah. My interpretation, Nanahid, was that having the conversation, like when you talk over me, that's a microaggression, that, that that is a scary thing to say to a boss. Is that what you meant, Anahi? Or Mina? I did. That's that's kind of, uh, yeah, it's a, I guess I should have framed that a little bit better. So yes, I'm talking about your secret number one, about people feeling nervous about sharing their experiences. And so are the experiences people are scared to share um, the microaggressions, or is is it that, you know, in my culture, we wouldn't think about this in this way. We would think about it in terms of like the land ownership thing, right? Yeah. Yes, I think both. Because both are forms of feedback to dominant ways of doing things that people take for granted. And I think... Um, both, depending on the environment or the leadership, can be could be perceived as um, somewhat threatening. And you know, I think in giving feedback, we're always it depends on environment, it depends on relationship. One of the things that we often talk about is like have a relational foundation in order to give feedback. It always makes it easier. Sometimes that's outside of our control. Um, if it's really an unsafe environment to provide feedback up the chain, then banding with others. Um, so we're not left, you know, in the cold delivering it ourselves can be a really helpful strategy because of strength in numbers, obviously. But yeah, it, it can be harder to see the cultural uh, micro inequities because the example you give of, well, I have a different perspective. My culture comes with a different perspective on this can be a little harder for people to see because identity slights are easier than seeing cultural slights like a lot of people don't see the way in which whiteness isn't about skin color it's actually about a set of dominant norms so there might need to be some education around that um when if you choose to 
name that as well. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. The decoding race course is excellent for white leaders that Emma teaches to really get people to see that it's a culture. It's the waters we swim in. It's not just about skin color privilege. It's about taking for granted the way I speak and my accent and the way I move and the decisions I make and how I work. All of that is everything is set up to privilege that. And that can be a little bit more work for people to see. Aisha and then uh, Jackie. Am I saying it properly? Oh, you're on mute. Uh, you're not. Um, yeah, you're not on mute, and yet we can't hear you. So I don't know if there's an external, you know, earphone or something. Still on mute. Maybe while you're um, figuring that out, Jackie. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much. I have a question. I, I'm I I want to reach out to my HR person and say you need to take a look at what Anima is doing. And I want to take this workshop. And I know you provide thousands and thousands of dollars of support for faculty members to learn how to be more productive with their writing from the National Center of Faculty Development. But I'm wondering if you we may shift that a little bit towards um, support for how to how to do all the things that you said, <laughs> um, all the things. Um, and so do you happen to have a little script or something to help us with that ask? <laughs> I get so, I already feel myself feeling uppity about it and saying like, what's, what's, <laughs> it's just all the reasons why I need to take this workshop, need to be a part of it. Um, how could you not support us in doing this? So I don't know if you have that ask already, um, like cut and paste kind of situation and adapt it for our needs. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we, uh, no, but you're making me want to write it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned. Yes, that's a great idea. <laughs> yes. Uh, Aisha, just wondering. Yeah, okay. No, we can't hear you. Do you want to put it into chat, Aisha? Yeah, no, I feel like I really, if we don't get to um, the comment in the group, Aisha, we'll just stay on for a few yeah. minutes um, afterwards. Um, I just want to say a thank you to um, everybody that joined us here today and for being, um, giving us your listening ears and attention. Uh, I think equity work isn't just um, important work. I think it is the work of the times we live in finding ways to stay and build relationship across our differences feels essential for our, our survival as a species. And so um, I thank all of you for the work you do and the ways in which you show up. And um, just once again, if you are interested, you're welcome to check out uh, the description, both programs, the EDI Lab for White Leaders and the BIPOC Leaders Lab are by application. We take a limited number and uh, we, um, I, I wish you um, ease and heart strength in these times before you go. So thank you for coming. Um, if you want to unmute, it's lovely to hear voices. And Lillian, we could just send this out to you in the um, email afterwards. Thank you, thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thank you. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today. Our next episode will be available soon.